Welcome back to Talk Evidence, your weekly look at the evidence base in COVID-19. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ, and as always, we're joined by our two favourite EBM nerds, Carl Hennigan and Helen McDonald. Uh, hi, guys. Hi, Duncan. Hi, Duncan. Welcome back to the pod. Has everyone had a good week? Ooh, that's a difficult one to answer. We're coming out of lockdown as of Monday and you can go to the garden centre today and I think we're all a bit pensive about what's going to happen next. But uh, I'll be looking forward, hopefully, to going back into the office sometime soon. But we're still waiting our guidance on what's coming next. And we did say last week that we were going to be talking about lockdown this week, but turns out uh, that was a little bit premature <laughs> and we are going to be looking at this in the future, we promise, but at the moment um, we're looking elsewhere. So Helen, you've been pulling together stuff for this episode. Uh, what is it that we're going to be talking about? Well, apologies about the lockdown. Um Yes, we've come to something different. So we've touched on the fact that all themes of EBM or ways in which it's broken or struggling have been illustrated by COVID. And this week, a theme that we haven't come to so far caught my eye, but in a good way. Uh, well, one in a good way and one in a bad way. Uh, the themes are big data and trials. And stick with me if this sounds a bit evidency, because we've got two guests who do give us some evidency information, but they also give us really good clinical information. And we're going to start with the good news, which was about big data. Which is good because that's what uh, Harlan was calling for in last week, if you listen to that. Exactly, exactly. So Harlan was in my ears when I saw mention of these two really interesting projects and one of them is based in primary care and one of them is based in secondary care. And they both have emerging results on preprints posted in the last couple of weeks. And we will include the links for you. And the first one, Carl, I thought might be of particular interest to you, because if you remember right back near the start of this pandemic, you were talking about the need for off the shelf pandemic research that was sort of planned in advance. And then you get it out of your drawer so that you don't have this kind of disaster situation of something striking and you're not ready. So the, this project is called Isaric, and it was set up as a sleeping pre-pandemic collection of research protocols and documents for future outbreaks in the wake of Middle East Respiratory Syndrome coronavirus, with a couple of dry runs to check it more or less worked. And it's supported by the World Health Organization, and also by the National Institute for Health and Research in the UK. It's a huge project. And I spoke to one of its leaders, Callum Semple, Professor of Outbreak Medicine and Child Health at the University of Liverpool. And he took about 15 minutes out of his rather crazy schedule to tell me about the bigger project and its first findings. And it was so fascinating. Um, there's lots of clinical stuff we could have talked about. And I asked him to focus in on some risk factors for COVID that we didn't know about yet. And also some really interesting work around symptom clusters. It's a very unusual project. The ISRIC clinical characterization protocol. It came out of frustration amongst the research community, particularly those in intensive care and infectious diseases, who were unable to respond rapidly in the face of the 2009 pandemic influenza outbreak. We, we put down the sort of academic rivalries in order to maximise collaboration in the face of outbreaks so that we can respond to them in a timely manner. 
with that as a sort of concept of operation, we developed protocols and took the protocols to the World Health Organization for their comments. And what was different about these protocols was it none of them had a pathogen named. We simply said that the pathogen would be a pathogen of public health interest. And the WHO really liked this concept and gave endorsement through their uh, ethical research committee. When we saw the emergence of this novel flu-like illness in Wuhan, our group started to get concerned. And when the first cases were seen, I think in Thailand and Taiwan, perhaps in Singapore, there was a few cases that just came out of China. As soon as that happened, um, I was able to contact the it's actually the, the deputy chief medical officer and raise the possibility that our study should be put onto standby, ready to recruit in the in the event of imported cases into the UK. And frankly, delighted with the the response, a uh, very rapid response, saying yes, go to standby, be ready to activate. And this meant that when the first cases did come into the country, we were able to recruit them and characterize them. And we've been doing it ever since. So here we are three months in, and we've recruited close to 35,000 cases of COVID. That's one in three of every case that's uh, been admitted to hospital. And we've been able to very accurately describe the risk factors that these people have for progressing to severe disease and death. We've been able to collect biological samples of blood, urine, stool, respiratory secretions, and throat swabs. And that'll allow us to do a really in-depth understanding of the biology of this disease. So in the work that you've done so far, is there anything about the risk factors for severe disease that has come as a surprise based on what we already knew from China? Yes, the Chinese population and their their situation around housing and age of the population and the proportion of the population that got children is starkly different to the British population. And it wouldn't be a surprise, therefore, if we find features that are different in our population. The one that's jumped out at us as being a very clear signal is that obesity, as defined by the physician when a patient is in the bed in front of them, so we, we're not doing heights and weights on every day as they come through the door because they're frankly too sick. But if a patient in the bed is considered to be obese by the admitting physician or the nurse practitioner, and that's documented in the notes, then that in itself increases the hazard of death by around about 30%. So compared to a standardised risk across the whole group of people that are admitted. And that's independent of all the other major comorbidities that we can identify. And that's a really important feature to identify because that, that then means that we can go back to policymakers and say, actually, it's not just having a bad heart or bad lungs or bad kidneys. If somebody's obese, then that in itself places them at risk of severe COVID. So that was a new finding. The other thing which I find interesting in your paper is this work around the symptom clusters. Can you touch on that briefly? A strength of, a strength of having a large data set is you can start to look at the clusters of symptoms. And it's clear that this is not simply a respiratory disease. We are seeing about a quarter of the adults presenting with an enteric presentation. So that's acute abdomen, diarrhea and vomiting, which is new. And about 5% of people will present with that alone. So they don't have predominant respiratory features, they'll have predominant acute abdominal features. 
And that presents a hazard because these people can be misclassified as non-COVID and put on non-COVID areas where they present a risk of nosocomial transmission and a risk of hospital-acquired infection. And those clusters operating sort of separately, so you either have a respiratory thing or you have an enteric-predominant illness, or are they sort of somewhere on a spectrum? You might only have one cluster or you might have elements of different clusters. It's a, it's a spectrum. So of those that have got classic COVID with the case definition of the, the cough, the fever, and because they're in hospital, they've got some degree of respiratory failure. Of that group, a quarter have an enteric component. So of those that have classic COVID, one in four have got an, have got an abdominal problem. But we also are aware that people can present simply with acute abdomen, diarrhea and vomiting. It can be one or the other and both. We're also seeing a cluster of mucocutaneous inflammatory features. And in children, there is, of course, this horrible inflammatory multisystem disorder which shares some of these features with the adults who have the mucocutaneous inflammatory uh, features. So it, it may well be that what we're seeing in children with these, this pronounced inflammatory multi-system disorder is also going on in the adults, but that we're just, not, we're just not paying it so much attention because most adults have got classic COVID disease. Uh, so, so we are seeing some very interesting clusters. It's too early to say at the moment whether these clusters are predictive of outcome. But it wouldn't surprise me if they were. It would be very logical. If the mucocutaneous, along with multi-inflammatory condition cluster, is associated with poor outcome, that wouldn't surprise me. And it wouldn't surprise me if the enteric-only outcome was associated with a milder course of disease. But that's, that's speculation at the moment. So that was Callum Semple talking about their project looking at about a third of the UK population admitted with COVID. I'm really interested to hear what you think of the symptom cluster information card because I thought it was so inf- interesting, especially the stuff around infection control and enteric symptoms. Well, I think it's been an interesting evolution of the evidence around the symptoms and some of the signs because we started out with this very clear picture of this is about cough and fever. And then we've seen this evolution of more symptoms and we've had odd ones like smell, taste. But I think this idea that it splits into three, but I'm going to add a fourth is systemic, enteric and respiratory is really helpful thinking. And the thing about the enteric, this abdo pain, diarrhea, loss of appetite, I think is really important because I'm also seeing through reports of particularly elderly patients, and I've got this from the out of hours, are running into problems with dehydration. Because if if you're elderly, and particularly if you've got dementia, and you lose your appetite, and you've got a bit of diarrhoea, three or four days of not drinking or eating is going to be deleterious and dangerous for this population. Lead to confusion, and in many cases will lead to hospitalisation and or death. So I think we need some real interesting and urgent thinking about the symptoms, particularly in the very elderly, and whether they need more supportive care for this wide-ranging symptom list. But there's one missing that I thought from that three, and that my fourth was the cardiac, because there's been many other reports of 
in JAMA and evidence coming out of Wuhan of particularly cardiac injury, arrhythmias, myocarditis and myocardial ischemia. And I saw in there they had chest pain in about 20% of the population. So I think there's a fourth in this symptom cluster that we need clarifying in their larger data set because I do think given the potential injuries in cardiac patients, there's an important cluster that needs to be added to them three. That's interesting. And one of the things that Callum and I talked a bit more about offline was the protocol that they started with and the and the sort of structured form that people would extract data with. And obviously, at that point in time, they don't know anything about or very little about the illness at all. And he was talking about how in that in the first surge of infection up to the up to the peak, which we're now past, it was all about um, using sort of the information that they had. And now as these other symptoms are emerging, they're able to go back and add those into their protocols so they can start to understand more about them. So I, I wonder if cardiac symptoms are on their list somewhere. I think there's also um, a big piece of the architecture missing here in the translation of the evidence and the research. I know the government gets up each day and says we're following the science, but we as clinicians and doctors out there really want to follow the evidence. So what I would have liked to have seen is this evidence emerge and then it translated into real usable information and advice in a rapid way. And I, and I think this is an important step that we know happens, but this should be happening within 24, 48 hours. Somebody like NICE getting together with some of the epidemiologists and clinicians to produce information that can be disseminated widely. What does this mean in terms of what you should look out for? But what does it also mean in terms of the adverse events, the complications that patients will run into that you might want to be thinking about in terms of intervening or providing supportive care? So the second person I talked to, Carl, I thought might have information that was more up your primary care street. And of course, you know him and you know this project well because it's run by um, Ben Goldacre, doctor, researcher and director of the Data Lab at the University of Oxford. And I asked him about his project, um, which I think um, is even larger the, than Callum's, um, drawing on a population of about 17 million adults. So let's hear how Ben's project differs. We set out to build an analytics platform across primary care data. And we knew that because of the scale of the global emergency of COVID, we needed something that would work faster and more efficiently and also run across a larger number of patients than really anything that's gone before in terms of the depth of information about each patient. Um, now, it's been the job of our lives and I have never loved a team more. Um, we've built it in 40 days from a standing start with no external funding. Um, it's been a truly multidisciplinary project. So my group, the Data Lab at Oxford, we are uh, a truly mixed team of software developers, traditional academic researchers and clinicians, all pooling skills. Um, and that means that we've got software developers who understand medical research in the NHS, but also researchers who understand software development. And that means that we can be very creative and fluent and work very quickly. This is not a traditional epidemiology research project. This is um, a collaborative computational data science project. It's implemented in software development tools. But then also, crucially, we're working alongside um, TPP, who are the electronic health record vendors. That has been 
a joy. I mean, I've wanted to do this for so long, but, you know, electronic health records researchers and electronic health record vendors should always have been the best of friends, should always have been working closely together. Um, And lastly, of course, we're working closely with NHS England and NHSX. In fact, we are working on behalf of NHS England to deliver this platform. All of our code is shared openly for security review, but also for scientific review and also for open reuse across the community so that we produce collaborative, open data science tools for EHR research. And this is stuff which should have existed forever, to my mind, or at least for for, for many years. Um, and I'm really pleased that we've been able to stand it up during um, during a crisis. So to understand more about what's possible, what kind of information do you have on people? I mean, presumably you have some demographic factors. Uh, I mean, how do you know if something's wrong with people? Are you, is this all done by their primary care record coding? And how are you picking up outcomes? Where where do they come from all that information? So our analytics platform has, runs its analyses across the full detailed longitudinal pseudonymized health records of 40% of the population. So that's um, diagnosis codes, obviously all of the core demographics stuff, uh, it's treatment codes, so prescriptions, um, test results, recordings of blood pressure, for example, um, lots of other information like that. Um, so this is... And does that information all have to be in the primary care record? It could could it be in other locations in, in secondary care or um, so other registries? So at the moment, we're focused on primary care really for the exposures. So to um, just very, very finely define uh, disease categories or treatment exposures. And the outcomes data that we're working on initially is death in hospital from COVID. So that's the CPNS data set and also ONS death. Um, We've also got access to ITU admissions and indeed um, treatment data from ICNOC. We've chosen not to use HES and SUS data for the moment. Um, It's it's not particularly useful for outcomes data quite yet because it comes with a very long time delay. It takes about a month before um, hospital admissions and hospital episodes data filters through. And that's too slow. This is a, you know, it's a global health emergency. You want to get answers Mm. as quickly as possible. That means you need to ramp up the statistical power as quickly as possible. Tell us a bit about your first paper and make this feel a bit more concrete for people. You've started by looking at risk factors, which I guess on one hand, you could say we know quite a bit about um, from China and other locations. But why did you start here? Well, so our paper that we published uh, last week is a cohort study in 17.4 million adults looking at factors associated with death in hospital from COVID. Um, It actually answers a lot of quite important questions, or or at least it shuts off some important uh, blind alleys. One key example is the increased risk of death amongst um, black and minority ethnic groups. So we know that people um, from black and Asian groups are more likely to die from COVID. And prior to our paper, people had very reasonably speculated that that might be due to an increased prevalence of cardiovascular problems, diabetes, deprivation or obesity amongst black and Asian groups. Our paper 
because we have access to all of that prior diagnostic information, our paper shows very, very robustly that actually that's not the explanation. And that's a really important finding. Um, other, I, I think, actually quite surprising and important findings um, include asthma. It was actually a great surprise to us that the excess risk from asthma was so low, given that this is principally mm. regarded, and I know there's a lot of discussion about this, but principally regarded as a respiratory disease. Presumably there's also some groups of people now, particularly as we're starting to see lockdown measures lift a bit and people either go back to work or go outside a bit more, um, groups of people who are considered particularly vulnerable who may want to know if that is indeed the case. And you mentioned that asthma seems to be less associated with um, severe disease. Um, I guess there are other groups of people perhaps taking immunosuppressants or pregnant women. Um, I'm sure you could think of a longer list. Than yeah, me. absolutely. <laughs> are you going to look at some of these these um, risk yeah, factors? Yeah, well, also? I mean, we we have, and as the numbers of deaths from COVID tragically increase, we have more statistical power, which enables us to look at the risks in these smaller and smaller categories of of people. Um, one of the main reasons we did this risk factor study is to help inform choices by policymakers and by patients. And you're absolutely right. One of the key ways out of lockdown is um, to risk stratify the population. And that's obviously what we've already done in a very crude way, saying everybody over 70 has to stay at home. And actually, by the way, it looks like age, independently of everything else, is an incredibly powerful determinant of death from COVID. Um, but I think there are other risk factors that we can look at to stratify risk either for individuals or for whole households. Um, and I think that's going to be a really important way of, of getting out of lockdown um, as smoothly and as safely as possible. Mm. So we're looking at producing risk prediction tools and so on from, from the data. But before we go on, something that stood out um, in Ben's interview there was the data that he gave on black and minority ethnic groups. And Callum Semple also had some data on that. What we have found so far is if you do an analysis called a matched propensity score analysis, which is, is, a, is, a, is a lovely design to do, if, if you essentially take for every member that is in the black or Asian groups and match them with someone that's in the, the white group. So you take a, a, a black person who's 55 with heart disease, and then you go into the data set and take out an Asian person who's 55 with heart disease and a white person with, that's 55 with heart disease and put them into three analytical bins. And you carry on doing that process for every single patient that you can, finding a, a matched person in each group. And this is called the matched propensity score analysis. When you do that, the effect of ethnicity on admission to intensive care and death becomes uh, clinically and statistically non-significant. Now that would suggest that the observed variation in outcome, which is, is real, there are more black people coming to hospital than should according to the proportion of the population, and they're coming to hospital as a younger age group and dying in a younger age group. So there, there absolutely is an effect. But the propensity score analysis suggests that what's driving that effect are community exposures and environmental factors rather than an underlying biological feature that's linked to 
ethnicity. I'm a bit confused about whether we're saying it's something environmental, perhaps inequality that's driving this versus it's something about perhaps your genetics as someone from that particular ethnic group. Can you shed any light on that? What they're both doing is saying, when we look at the population with the infection, who's more likely to die? But the problem is there's a missing bit of the information architecture. Who's more likely to get the infection? And do either of them answer that question? No, they don't. But what Callum's propensity matching starts to suggest is that actually environmental features, like if you live in higher urban densities, and we've seen this in America, if you're black, you're more likely to get the infection. And that's what, what might be driving part of the problem. If you live in multi-occupation households, some ethnicities live in larger groups uh, together, you may get more of the infection. All of them are important features to understand if the actual getting the infection is driving the increase or actually is it the fact that when you turn up you're more likely because like for like black people and white people get the infection at the same rate. Semple's piece of work suggests that's not the case and that actually part of the problem is they may be getting more infections. Now why don't we uh, start turning our eyes towards our treatment. We've covered this a little bit um, and I just wondered if uh, if there was anything new to say about uh, treatment of COVID, perhaps some drug treatment. Now, look, I do want to, uh, our resident clinical pharmacologist, Ferner and Aronson, who we've had on this show, have just put out uh, an interesting piece about azithromycin and its interaction with hydroxychloroquine in the treatment of COVID-19. And we've heard a lot about this. We've heard a lot about it from people like President Trump. And in many countries, they're using this combination of treatment because azithromycin has an impact around RNA and people have used small trials to inform the use of hydroxychloroquine. But there's a potentially important interaction between the two drugs that actually together they prolong the QT interval. In a report of 84 adults, a third had a QT interval increased by 40 milliseconds and one in 10 had their QT interval prolonged by greater than 500 milliseconds. I'm just putting that out there that that is an important adverse event. And given the seriousness of that and that it can be fatal, that combination should not be used unless there's trial evidence showing that actually it does benefit. And currently there is none of that evidence available. Can I come in here as well? Because I said there were two themes that were interesting me this week. One was big data and one was trials. And the trial that I was interested in was on a drug. And this was the thing that made me sadder this week. And I feel like I'm going to set Carl up for for a massive rant. <laughs> We've had some... <laughs> I can uh, see him. <laughs> He's got to be quiet. He started to get red already. (laughs) Um, So we've had a few little baby rants about some of the problems um, that we're seeing emerging of lots of small trials, perhaps poor coordination of studies um, in COVID. The theme of this rant is slightly different, I think. I think it's about best practice in trials and early stopping and sharing data and transparency in a timely way. And the drug I am talking about is remdesivir. 
And this was a drug we talked about on the show um, quite recently. It has a plausible mechanism. It had shown some promise in vitro. When we talked about it last time, there'd been this profoundly odd manufacturer-led paper published in a surprisingly prominent um, journal, which didn't really tell us anything. Um, but since then, some trial data have emerged. And at the end of April, 29th of April, The Lancet published a randomized trial on remdesivir from China, funded by the Chinese Academy of Medical Sciences Emergency Project of COVID-19. And it struck me that this was the kind of um, what Trish Groves, our retired deputy uh, editor at BMJ, used to call the beginning of a story. So this was um, adult patients admitted to hospital with severe COVID-19 in China. And it was the first randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled clinical trial on intravenous remdesivir. And they described their results as preliminary. Um, so it was good for China, but bad for this study that COVID-19 kind of faded out. So they didn't recruit enough people into the study to, to power themselves properly for their primary endpoint, which was time to clinical improvement. So they didn't find a statistically significant difference between groups. Their confidence intervals were very wide. They'd been looking for an improvement of more than six days between groups in their power calculation, which meant that they would have ended up with a hazard ratio comparing remdesivir to placebo of 1.4. And they found a hazard ratio of 1.23 with confidence intervals that stretch from 0.87 to 1.75. So plausibly, there might have been a meaningful benefit of the drug for that outcome, but it's possible that there wasn't. And it's even possible that the drug could have made things worse. And then there were a whole variety of secondary outcomes. Um, and most arguably, death at 28 days seems quite important amongst the ones they had listed. And there they found that about 14% of people had died in the remdesivir group versus 13% in the placebo group. So again, not much difference, but again, a lot of uncertainty. So with their 1.1% difference, the confidence interval stretched from minus 8.1 to plus 10.3. So this seemed very uncertain. It certainly didn't seem from that study like remdesivir was going to be a total game changer. But very oddly, the same day that that study was released, sort of almost implausibly, strangely, there was a press release from the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases in the US, who were also doing a remdesivir trial. And they announced some preliminary results to say that they had stopped their trial early. And they had an indication that the median time to recovery, I'm not sure when that's timed from, whether it's from randomization, admission, symptom onset, whatever it was, was 11 days for people treated with remdesivir compared to 15 days for those treated with placebo. And they also said that their results suggested a survival benefit with a mortality of about 8% for the group receiving remdesivir compared to 11.6% for the placebo group, although that result, again, had not reached statistical significance. And they listed a P, they didn't give a confidence interval, but they gave a p-value of um, 0.059. There are a few other odd things about that study. One was that the primary outcome had been switched from death to recovery. And the other interesting thing is that those results are not publicly available. So this was all issued in a press release and announced, but it's not published. They're not posted on a preprint server. And the same day, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the US infectious disease advisor, announced 
sort of great optimism towards this drug, um, saying that it would be the standard of care. And a couple of days later, the FDA in the US issued an emergency use authorization. So it's been a really interesting story that we've been talking about at BMJ over this week. And from an EBM perspective, there seem to be a whole number of interesting issues, issues such as decision making based on a single trial, decision making based on interim results, outcome switching, changes to the way the study was analysed, a sense of secrecy or lack of transparency around these results and sort of really what's going on. And I felt, Carl, that you would definitely have um, thoughts or opinions on this because your team must have been talking about this as well this week. I'm not sure whether I describe myself as outraged, depressed or just downright, just worn down by this sort of approach to (laughs) healthcare and developing evidence. I just... What is going on when we consider a third of the world, if not more, is in complete utter lockdown? And what's going to change the nature of that is a couple of days in terms of hospitalizations for a drug that's going to come along. Hey, we don't need to be in lockdown. Everybody's going to be fine because two or three days less in hospital is the endpoint we're going to look at. That's the first point to say that's utterly ridiculous because... We are interested in people dying, admission to critical care units. All of these really hard endpoints are what matter and make a difference. We're interested in people being admitted to hospital in the first place so we can reduce that. We're interested in people who are dying out of hospital reducing that. So this approach to evidence of switching to a small reduction in symptoms, ignoring the hard endpoints, is unacceptable. And one of the things that's going to come out of this when we look back is as a society, we should all be outraged and we should ask for this to be ended because the journals are buying into it, FDA is buying into it, the companies, the researchers think this is okay. It is not okay. And I'm just getting going now because also, (laughs) if you look at all the trials, there are 11 trials that were registered for remdesivir. Two have already had to stop or not been able to complete in China because they couldn't find patients. Of the other nine, only three are placebo controlled, three are compared to standard care, and three are uncontrolled. And one of the largest trials, 6,000 patients, has no control group. What a waste, what a waste. So when you look at all that in the round, after this, we have to come back with a completely, utterly new approach. And the number one issue is critical outcomes that should be defined by the World Health Organization and say, this is what you have to measure and report on. Anything outside of that might be interesting, but we're not going to act on it. And critical outcomes are the ones that matter. And the number one here, as we've seen around the world, is death. Why the WHO? Because it's um, the FDA who's uh, given a sort of license to uh, remdesivir for for treatment for COVID? Well, the thing is about the regulators, they will just give a license to a treatment on uh, a symptomatic benefit. That will be shown enough to give you a license. It doesn't mean you should use it in any way. It shouldn't mean that it actually provides the benefits outweigh the harms. It just says you're now free to have access to the market to use this drug and make it available. But what we're... It just means you can sell. Yeah. Whereas, well, what we want to know is, should we use? Yeah. 
And, you know, in some in some indications, symptoms are very important. You know, if you've got a rash, and an itchy rash, then actually antihistamines that might release symptoms are really important. It's just in this case, it is not important for, for helping us not lock down the whole of society. We need the hard endpoints. And particularly if we had drugs that reduced hospitalisation and that for those hospitalised reduced mortality, they'd be important. The thing that's really uh, also debilitating about this is the fact that the trials were stopped early, had not completed. And that's why you get this p-value that's not significant. And we all know, and I've talked about this before, of the hot stuff bias. When a topic is fashionable, investigators may be less critical in their approach to their research and investigators and editors may not be able to resist the temptation to publish the results. All of that is happening this and this is not just hot hot stuff bias, it is incredibly flaming hot stuff bias because we are not being critical enough and I think we need a new approach. The quality of the evidence and it is worrying that we'll get to this position after all this that we may not know the answer or remdes of it. Well, Carl, thanks for that rant. That's sort of harking back to the old days. Of, um, <laughs> I enjoyed baiting candidates. him. Yeah, you got me going. Yeah. <laughs> and it was nice, actually, as well, to hear some positive things. We used to have more positive news in the podcast, and it feels like COVID's been a bit of a... Uh, a perpetual downer so you know it's good that big data is actually even though we've been skeptical of it in the past um seems like it's it's coming through now uh that's it for this episode we're going to be back again next week uh with more about covid19 i'm not going to be tempted to tell you what it's going to be about (laughs) this time um so subscribe (laughs) on apple podcasts or Uh, Spotify or wherever else you get your podcast from if there's anything that you want us to to look into um, you know our social media you can also go to bmj.com slash podcast to find out how to get in touch so until next week it's goodbye from me goodbye from me and goodbye from me take care out there